Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Paradise podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. Last time we read chapter 11 of Shmuel Bet, which described David in steep decline. If you remember, the chapters leading up to chapter 11 describe David in all of his glory, having made Jerusalem his capital, relocated the ark, expressed a desire to build the temple, and secured the borders of the realm from any and all threats. Chapter 11 began, however, with David complacent, remaining behind in Jerusalem, even while his men, led by his general Yoav, were fighting a war against the Ammonites. And of course, that led to David taking a nap, going out for a walk, strolling on the roof of his palace, seeing Bathsheba, and going through a series of diabolical steps in order to sleep with her. The text describes how David makes inquiries, David sends messengers, this happens a number of times until the deed is done, as if to suggest that David's action is deliberate and intentional and well thought out, except of course the unexpected takes place, which is that Bathsheba becomes pregnant. At that time, David first attempts to cover his tracks by inviting her husband Uriah back from the front, hoping that Uriah will sleep with his wife, but that does not happen because Uriah's loyalty is such that he can't imagine doing so, even as the army and the Ark of the Covenant and Yoav are encamped in tents fighting the Ammonites. So David's plan fails. David tries again, this time inebriating Uriah, but once again, to no avail. In the end, David sends a message, ironically, with Uriah. The message is sealed, it's to be delivered to Yoav, and in the message it is stated, place Uriah opposite the fighting men, the enemy forces, retreat from him so that he will be struck down and killed. And with that, we ended our discussion last time. We're picking up from that point this time. What can be said up until now is that David has demonstrated an incredible ability to plan, to manipulate in order to commit the crime. And of course, as the crime unfolds, it becomes more and more grievous. Perhaps David's intention at the outset was not to kill Uriah, but that's, of course, where the crime has led him right now. Sure enough, Uriah, loyal devotee of David that he is, delivers the message without reading it. And Yoav places him close to the city wall of Rabat Amon. The enemy archers fire their arrows, and Uriah as well as other Israelite fighters, are killed. Yoav sends word back to David, and Yoav makes it clear that if David be upset over the amount of casualties, that the messenger should then 
emphasize that Uriah has been killed. When the message reaches David, David responds with splendid indifference. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, communicate the following to Yoav. Let it not be evil in your eyes. This is how it goes. The sword consumes this one and that one. As if to say, them's the breaks in war. People are going to die. Continue fighting the war against the city until it is reduced. And so with that pronouncement, David washes his hands or attempts to of the crime that he has committed. Uriah is dead. That's all that matters. The fact that other Israelites also died in the process in order to fulfill the word of the king is of little consequence. Verse 26 reports, significantly now referring to Bathsheba as the wife of Uriah, the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, but he spod al ba'ala, she mourned over her husband. So here, Bathsheba is described very, very emphatically as the wife of Uriah, once the mourning period is over, David took her, he brought her to his palace, and she became his wife and gave birth to his son. For all intents and purposes, it seems as if David got away with it, got away with the crime, was able to get Bathsheba, was able to dispose of her husband, and ultimately realize everything that he desired. But the chapter ends ominously with a final phrase, Vayera hadavar asher David be'enei Hashem. That which David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord, which is to say, insofar as the human players were concerned, David, in fact, was able to accomplish the crime undetected, However, God was well aware of what David had done, and it was evil in his eyes. This, of course, is going to be a very harsh indictment of David and David's behavior, as we will see, chapter 12, now unfolding. God sends Natan the prophet to David, bearing a parable, a message, and of course, this visit of Natan stands in glaring contrast to the chapter 7 encounter with Natan when David expressed his desire to build a temple and Natan encouraged him until the word of God came to Natan and he said to David, I'm so proud, but it's going to be your son who builds the temple and not you. So here, of course, we have a complete, almost, uh, inversion of that earlier encounter, Natan once again sent to David, but this time not bearing a message of divine pride, but rather of divine disappointment. The parable goes as follows. There were two men who dwelt in a single city. One of them was wealthy and one of them was poor. The wealthy man was very wealthy. He had so much sheep and cattle 
The poor man had only one little lamb, but that little lamb was so precious to him. It grew up in his household with his children. It ate from his food and drank from his cup and slept in his embrace and truly was like a daughter to him. A traveler arrived at the house of the wealthy man, but the wealthy man could not bring himself to take from his own sheep and cattle in order to prepare a meal for the traveler. Instead, he took the one little lamb of the poor man and prepared it for the traveler who had arrived. And that's the story that Natan tells David, now waiting for David to pronounce judgment on the situation. David was very upset against that individual, against that man, and he said, by the Lord, that man deserves to die. As for the lamb which he took, he should pay back that lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no compassion. David's response is sincere. Remember how David was described in the earlier chapters as being a king who exercised justice and righteousness and that righteous indignation is here expressed. How could it be that the wealthy man would take that one little lamb from the poor man and instead offer it to the traveler? How could anyone be so cruel is basically David's response. Natan now turns to David and pronounces what are perhaps two of the most powerful words in the Hebrew Bible. Ata Ha'ish, you are that man. This is not a story about someone else. This is a story about you. We might add, this is not a story about David. This is a story about us. One of the profound messages of this entire dramatic event is to remind the reader that all of us on some level are in David's place sometimes committing crimes, hopefully not as serious, not as grievous, but harming other people, hurting other people, manipulating other situations, rationalizing after the fact, justifying, etc. Natan brings all of that crashing down with these two overwhelming words, Ata Ha'ish, you are the man, this is your story, David, not someone else's. Thus says God, I anointed you as king over Israel. I saved you from Shaul. I gave you everything in your master's house, including his wives, all of the house of Israel and Yehuda. I would have given you more. How could you have disgraced the word of God to do this evil in his eyes? Verse number nine, at Uriah hachiti hikita vacherev, you struck down Uriah by the sword and you took his wife to be your own wife and you killed him by the sword of the Ammonites. Nothing escaped God's surveillance. Every single moment in the course of that crime had been surveilled. And now the punishment is pronounced. The sword will never depart from your house forever, says God. An evil will arise out of your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your fellow, and he will sleep with your wives before this very son. 
What you did, you did in secret. But this thing I will do publicly before all of the people of Israel and before the sun. God says David's punishment will consist of bloodshed associated with his dynasty forever, which of course is a direct response to David killing Uriah HaChiti. And God says at the same time, there will be a humiliation and a disgrace of David. Someone will sleep with his wives, but it won't be private. It won't be hidden. It won't be concealed. It will be public and it will be before the very sun. And that, of course, is a direct response to David having taken Bathsheba and slept with her secretly. So as it is right now, David stands accused. David stands indicted. David is sentenced. What will be his response? And here, once again, we have perhaps two of the most important words in the Hebrew Bible. Verse number 13, David said to Natan, Chatati Lashem, I have sinned to God. There is no attempt to escape. There's no attempt to deflect blame. There is no attempt to avoid taking responsibility. None of the excuse-making that we heard Shaul doing back in chapter 15 of Samuel 1, David takes full responsibility and pronounces the words, Chatati Lashem, I have sinned to God. And those two words, of course, stand in perfect parallel to Natan's accusation at the beginning of the discussion, Atahaish, you are the man, this is about you. Chatati Lashem, I take responsibility. I am guilty. I have sinned. Natan responds, God has forgiven your sin such that you will not die. But that's not to say that the other punishments will not be meted out. And as for the son that Bathsheba bore you, he will die. Natan leaves without any other discussion. David does not have a chance to respond. And sure enough, that child is stricken and becomes deathly ill. David prays to God. David fasts. David sleeps on the floor, on the ground, in order to arouse divine compassion. David refuses to eat, but on the seventh day, the child dies. David's servants are afraid to tell him lest he do something rash. He sees his servants whispering, and he understands that the child is dead. And now David arises from the ground, verse number 20. He washes, he anoints, he switches his garments. He comes to the house of God and bows down before him. And he returns to his house and eats bread. His servants are surprised. While well, the child was deathly ill, you, show, you showed signs of mourning and deep distress. Now that the child is dead, everything seems to have gone back to normal. David says, very simple, as long as I held out a hope that the child could live, 
and I conducted myself accordingly. But now that I see that the child is dead, I accept it. I cannot restore him to me. Ani holech elav, fehu lo yashuv elai. I am going to him. He will not be returning to me. So David at this moment shows resignation and acceptance, acceptance of the divine punishment, or at least the first step of it. And of course, as for the rest of that punishment, the bloodshed, the disgrace that is yet to transpire, and we'll have to see how the following chapters develop that story. When the ancient rabbis discussed these harrowing chapters, they were of two minds. Some of them sought to exonerate David from the crimes ascribed to him in these chapters. They spoke of something called a retroactive bill of divorce. Every, every member of David's army that goes out to battle writes a conditional divorce for his wife. If he doesn't return from battle, then his wife is divorced retroactively from when he left. This saves her from all sorts of possible mishaps should the deceased not be located so that she can remarry and the rest of it. And some of the ancient rabbis wanted to apply this principle to our story as if to say, when Uriah dies at the front, effectively the retroactive bill of divorce goes into force. And it turns out that Bathsheba therefore is divorced from the time that Uriah left to the front, thus making David not guilty of adultery. Similarly, some of the rabbis wanted to argue that Uriah, in referring to Yoav as my master Yoav, when he came back from the front, even as he is before David, the king of Israel, that, as it were, is seditious to refer to Yoav as his master when David the king is his master. And therefore, these rabbis argued, David was just in having Uriah put to death for being a rebel against the king. Obviously, these kinds of interpretations require a certain amount of acrobatics in order for them to be possible. And it's not surprising that other ancient rabbis disagreed with this approach and wanted to read the story as simply as the story presents itself, which is to say, David was guilty of adultery and David was guilty of having Uriah put to death. But this ancient debate about whether we should be exonerating David or attempting to do so continued throughout the medieval period and into the modern period as well. And of course, we have to make a choice, I suppose, which approach we're going to take. In more traditional circles, there is sometimes a great reluctance to criticize biblical figures, lest doing so will completely make those biblical figures unworthy of our attention and unworthy of our study. 
And at the same time, I should just point out that in some modern circles, the opposite effect is popular, where David is recalled as a scoundrel, as a manipulator, as a evil man, as Machiavellian, etc., and therefore sort of to completely undermine everything that he stands for and everything that he accomplished. So I'd like to take the view of the Abarbanel in this particular discussion. The Abarbanel was the great 15th century Spanish commentary, statesman, philosopher, who was exiled in 1492 along with the rest of the Jews of Spain. And he has the following to say. After going through the ancient rabbinic discussion, Abarbanel says, quite simply, with all due respect to the Midrashic attempts to exonerate David, the text itself makes it very clear that he's guilty. After all, he himself said, Chatati Lashem, I have sinned against God. Abarbanel says, I refuse to be lenient concerning David's sin. I will not deny the straightforward truth that the text proclaims. It is better for me, he says, if the text referred to David as a sinner and he admitted his sin, how could anyone believe otherwise? Tovli she'omar better that I should say that he sinned greatly and he confessed greatly v'shav b'tshuva gimura and he did a complete and real teshuva v'kibel on show he received his punishment uvazenit kapru avonotav and through that, his transgressions were atoned for. So Abarbanel basically argues, it is the case that the crime is real, but that's only half of the story. The other half of the story, which we will investigate a little bit next time, is that there's also a tshuva story here. David who confessed, David who repented, David, who did a sincere and transformative tshuva, that's actually the conclusion of our story. And to just read the story of the crime and ignore the conclusion of the tshuva is to miss the point. We'll continue next time. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.